I was going to talk on something tonight because, y'all, it seems like we're in a pivotal time in history. You know, the Lord tells you there's a few things that you're supposed to pray over. That He just tells you this is something you're supposed to pray over. Can you think of some of those things He's told us? Pray over this. Yeah. He says, pray for Jerusalem, for peace. Pray for your leaders, that you can live in peace. Yes, pray at all times in the spirit of saints. I mean, there's all types of mandates of prayer. And, you know, I've wondered, this is kind of a crazy idea, but you know how in Muslim countries right now, they're having all types of dreams. And you know what I think that comes from? I think the Lord has, you know, that he has to have prayer to motivate that to start happening. I think it's all those old blue-haired ladies in Sunday school classes that would get a map and start praying for a country. And I think that it gave God prayer to motivate that to start happening, to go and start making a move all through the world of dreams. You know, the evangelistic efforts aren't doing as good as the dreams are because it's hard to evangelize openly in those type countries. They'll just kill you. So the dreams are really unique of how people are coming to faith. And I really do think it's prayer. So I'm really deeply tonight going to encourage you in your prayer life. And there's probably not a night that goes by that when I pray that I don't use this model of prayer somewhere. There used to be this guy, he would teach you to pray. It was, can you tarry for one hour? And he used this guideline. But I just want you to look at it conceptually. What Jesus gave us is a prayer guideline. I want you to look in Matthew 6, verse 9. And the thing that the disciples come to Jesus say, how do we pray? Now, he could have said a thousand different things right here. When they ask him, how do we pray? If I wasn't familiar with this, my mind would be guessing all kinds of things that he might say is what a prayer should look like. But this, to me, is so unique that he gives you a model of prayer, how to pray. Jesus gives you a prayer guideline, and I think we need to figure out what kind of topics or what kind of categories we should cover in prayer. Now, the first thing man does is he runs it. In Matthew 6, 8, it clearly tells you, you're not going to get good prayer results just because you have a lot of words. Vain repetitions. How do we manage to take a verse like that connected to this, and then we say, okay, for a sin you've committed, pray a hundred our fathers. When it clearly tells you, Doing vain repetitions don't do any good. So I'm going to say that it's a very deep praying out of your guts. And if you've never used this model to pray, I think this is so important. And I want you to look through it. We're going to take a verse-by-verse look. And then we're going to move something into it about the country under one of them. But in Matthew 6, 8, we've sinned, so you say a hundred our fathers. It's not designed to work that way. There's no extra points you get in heaven for repetition. So it comes from actually praying with your heart to the Lord out of a good spirit. Now, I think the first thing that's so interesting in this prayer is who? In the beginning it says, Our Father which art in heaven. It's not our Father which art on earth. (laughs) He gives who? Our Father which art in heaven. The way that Jesus introduced God to us changes everything. If he had told us, pray, dear God, can you imagine how impersonal that would have been? Dear God. But he tells you, we're going to pray, our Father which art in heaven. And I think what's unusual is, he doesn't say, my God. He says, our Father. So he didn't make it, my Father. He made it, our Father. 
So you see the family start out here, that he's taking in the whole ideal. The way Jesus introduced God changes everything. He's God. He's maker of the universe. He's the one we fall on our face and we say he's holy, but Jesus chose to call him Father. And I get so tickled at all the major religions who don't know this particular God. They think that God's name is so holy you can't say it. Oh my gosh, all the major religions. They would say, you blasphemed. What are you doing? Why are you calling him Father? But yet Jesus introduces him to you on the basis of relationship. The first two words tells you it's all about relationship. You know, I get tickled having been in Israel a lot. It's such a difference between how Christians think and how they think. But we're like a praying our Father. But they start thinking that His name is so holy and so personal, I can't say it. And we say it's so holy and so personal, we must say it. And I think it's just such a difference here of the mentality. And it makes it more personal. The one thing Jesus did to us, He could have separated us from God. He could have said, you're sinful flesh, you're man. You should be the most calling Him just, you know, a generic God. But He actually put the concept of Father and he chose that word for us. And it's not blasphemy. Now, I'm going to say something here, and I just want you to think about it. Because I'm not trying to take away from other teachings. I'm trying to tell you, I think it's because it trumps how special a relationship a father is. In Matthew 23, 9, it says, don't call anyone father. Why does it say that? Don't call anyone father. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't say your earthly biological dad is your father. Because he says if your father being evil knows how to give good gifts. But he's talking about, I would say, in a spiritual sense. And it's so odd to me here that he says there's such a specialness between God and you that this is reserved for just God and just you. That's why with your pastor, you call him brother so-and-so. You don't call him father so-and-so. I went to see a guy that was father, and I was like, and I stumbled all over myself, and I said, sir, I've just got to call you brother. I'm not allowed to call you father. And he goes, it's okay. (laughs) He was like, but it's because of the fact that it's not putting down other things. It's flat just telling you, this is such a special thing. The fatherhood of God. It's absolutely the specialness of what this means here. Between you and God. And then I immediately thought, well, I'm going to look up that scripture in Mark. Because it says you give up mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers. And I thought, and then you get a hundred times as much. And I was like, did God contradict himself? But he says, call no one father. But he says, if you give up your mother, brother, sister for the sake of the kingdom, then you get a hundred times as much. And he says, land and persecutions. I never hear anyone go, thank you, Lord, for all this persecution I'm getting. But have you ever had something where you thought, I wonder if Jesus contradicted himself? And then if he did, then you're going to have to say, okay, there's just something I'm not understanding. So this was that verse, because when I saw that one that said in Matthew 23, I had to look it up, and I couldn't wait to get there, because it's after the rich young ruler. And Peter goes, look, we gave up everything. And Jesus tells his number. He goes, well, you know, it's like somebody has to go through the eye of a needle. Like a camel has to go through an eye of a needle. It's that difficult for a rich man to get saved. And Peter just is so frustrated with him. He goes, then who can be saved? We've given up everything. 
And what I think is unique about this verse, it's telling you that on earth you get it back a hundred times as much. You know, we have this view that a lot of times, well, we'll get it in heaven. But this is actually telling you on earth. This is where the kingdom of God is coming to the earth. So I looked it up, Mark 10, verse 29. It says, we give up brothers, sisters, mother, father, or children for the gospel's sake. And we receive back a hundred times as much in verse 30. And what's the one thing left off the list? Father. He didn't contradict himself. I think that's hilarious that he says you give these things up, but you get these things back. And if I ever was going to say, what a time to capitalize on this particular concept in the Word, it's when you're realizing how special it is that He's called Father. That that is such a unique relationship between you and God. He doesn't let anyone else have that. You know, He says, don't let yourself be called teacher. You know, you look at it and it's funny. It says, so you're not a teacher, you're a disciple. You're not a professional, you're a learner. And you know what? So many people want titles. And he's going, drop the titles. And he goes, but don't take it negative. This is not a negative verse. It's flat telling you. It's so unique and so special to you that sometimes I just spend time going, Our Father. He's my Father. Our Father. He is that relationship with me. He's a Father God to me. And in a world where there's so many breakdowns of fathers... My gosh, this is a great verse. This is such a good verse to say, man, Lord, thank you for taking that position with me. Anyway, so I want you to capitalize on the unique aspect that he says this is a special relationship between you and I, that I am special to you. I am your Father, our Father which art in heaven. So the most important aspect of the gospel is that we're allowed to call God Father. And if your earthly father wasn't the best, he made allowances for it. He goes, well, sometimes God has to redo what what the father did for you. Because I don't care how good they are, they still don't measure up to how wonderful and how perfect he is. And that's why I think he says the word heavenly. Because he's perfect. Because, you, you know, with God, he knows the future. So he can give you the best advice. He can tell you what his will is because he has your best interest in mind. I think my brother said the other day to my dad, he goes, you know, I finally figured something out. You have my best interest in mind. And I'm like, hallelujah. He's matured. (laughs) Because that's what you figure out about a father is. They have your best interest in mind. A true good daddy doesn't yell at you because he's angry because you're getting on his nerves. He yells at you because you're going to keep your attitude right, and he wants you to teach you to control your emotions. He does things for your good. The Lord does things for your good. It's, it's such a unique relationship. Sometimes God has to redo it. This is the Heavenly Father, and He will be that Father to you, that perfect Father. And I think right there we could stop and just say, we could go home tonight. It's so good to just say, wow, he introduced the beginning thing of our Father. But he has more to say. And so the next thing he says is, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed. I go, Lord, is that your favorite word? I kind of like how majestic is your name, you know. Hallowed, that's such a unique name. Worship. Every prayer begins by praise. His name is to be praised. You know, I asked Melanie Henry once, I said, what's your favorite story that you've ever written? 
And she said it was about this guy in Africa. And without having American money, he became one of the biggest churches in his whole area. I'm talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Now, most of the time when they do that, somewhere American money is coming in there. And so I thought, well, I'm going to have to find out what his secret is. And he said that he spends, you know, hours in prayer. But if he doesn't have time to spend hours in prayer, he says, if I have to be in a hurry, he said, the one thing that I do is I spend my time in worship. He said, that's the one part I don't cut. He said, I'd rather worship. And if I have to cut off sooner than I want to, he said, the worship part is what I don't cut. So you're looking at it online too. Of our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I think it's unique to bless his name. They say the difference between a Jew and a Gentile is Gentiles bless their food. Jews bless his name before they eat. And it's blessing his name. Hallowed be thy name. Your name is to be glorified in all the earth. Is your name important? Yes. Hallowed be thy name. It doesn't say hallowed be you. It's hallowed be your name. So, don't you think it's where people are like, they use God's name so frivolously? You know, you're sometimes when they scream, oh God, you don't know if they're really praying or if it's just a byword. You know, I want you to say, I'm going to be a part of that part of the world where I'm blessing the name of the Lord. Where He's holy to me. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you ever think about it when you get up in the morning that everywhere you put your feet that you're literally bringing the kingdom of God right there? That you're praying heaven come down and right here the kingdom of God your will be done. Sometimes if I have a problem I go walk around like when I was in college walk around my dorm or walk around my house and I'm putting my feet down and it's an authority thing and I'm saying right here thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this solves all your problems of what's God's will. This is what's being done in heaven. You know when people say well cancer. It's not in heaven. It wasn't in the garden when it was perfect. Man sin. It opened up all this stuff on us. And just a lot of bad stuff came on us. So I think right here is such a unique ideal that the Lord is telling you, you don't have to wait till you die. I mean, we treat salvation as if it's just fire insurance. But the truth is that it's telling us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're not supposed to be waiting for heaven. And I'm telling you, I think the whole church is always just looking for, okay, let's die so we can go to heaven. You know, let's, let's just make sure we rapture out. And I'm just like, it's always looking out after themselves. But you're actually bringing heaven down to earth. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Agreement. God's kingdom. His reign. Every kingdom has a king. A coming kingdom. A coming king. The will of the king. Either we're doing our will or God's will. And then we take and we say, there's a king with a kingdom that's coming. And my job is to bring it on earth. We were talking about that in here. They were telling us a minute ago while we were meeting with someone in there that this is the only place I can come to have peace. And I said, that's because a lot have been bringing the will of God down here on this part of the earth. This is our turf. Is your home a place of peace? Do people come in and go, my gosh, your home has peace in it? 
You know, people come into my parents' house all the time and they go, I've never experienced such peace. You know, there was a little girl came to my house a, a few weeks ago and she just ran into the dining room and started grabbing the uh, wallpaper and she goes, oh, this is the house, this is the trust house, this is that house. And she, she just started grabbing the walls. And she just started, I mean, it was just so unique watching her. She had read about it, but she thought my house was mom and dad's house. I go, no, this is, this is the trust house number two. This is number one. But what people are sensing is, and I don't even realize it because I kind of stay among peace. You know, when you go into a home, you're supposed to be blessing that home with peace. Shalom. I bless this house with peace. It must do something. And people should be commenting that you're actually bringing the will of God into your place. Like they should come to your room and say, I feel a difference on it. Because it says if a person of peace is there, the peace will stay. And then evangelism, Corey Tim Boone said it this way. She says there's only two types of people in the world, missionaries and mission fields. <laughs> she said when I look at people, I'm looking at them and saying, they're either a missionary or they're a mission field. And I thought, what a unique way to divide it right there between those two. You know, one time I had the Lord tell me to say, Red Rover, Red Rover, let so-and-so come over. It's just kind of like, it's time for you to come into the kingdom. <laughs> you remember that game we played as kids? And so bringing His will down on earth, the evangelism, taking your piece of the territory for God. When I walk and pray, I say, Lord, everywhere I tread my feet is under my authority, and your will is done here. And you start establishing the will of God is done. Praying God's will. Praying it down to earth. Now, at this point, Steph's going to come up here and she's going to read a couple of things. Because, y'all, if this does not encourage you, I don't know what will. I want you to think about the fact, can you believe that literally, that you could be one person praying and you could change a whole nation? You know, we sit there and think, how many people does it constitute to make something change? And so I want you to hear these stories. Because y'all, we may need it in the days that come. From 1941 to 1943, I served as a hospital attendant with the British forces in North Africa. I was part of a small medical unit that worked with two British armored divisions, the 1st Armored Division and the 7th Armored Division. It was this latter division that became celebrated as the Desert Rats, with the emblem of the white jerboa. At that time, the morale of the British forces in the desert was very low. The basic problem was that the men did not have confidence in their officers. I myself am the son of an army officer, and many of the friends with whom I grew up were from the same background. I thus had some valid standards of judgment. As a group, the officers in the desert at that time were selfish, irresponsible, and undisciplined. Their main concern was not the well-being of the men or even the effective prosecution of the war but their own physical comfort. I recall one officer who became sick with malaria and was evacuated to a base hospital in Cairo. For his transportation to Cairo he required one four-berth ambulance for himself and a one-and-a-half-ton truck to carry his equipment and personal belongings. At the time we were continually being reminded that trucks and gasoline were in very short supply and that every effort must be made to economize in the use of both. From Cairo, this officer was then evacuated to Britain, a procedure that certainly was not necessitated by a mere bout of malaria. 
Some months later, we heard him on a radio broadcast relayed from Britain. He was giving a very vivid account of the hardships of campaigning in the desert. At that period, our greatest hardship was the shortage of water. Supplies were very strictly rationed. Our military water bottles were filled every other day. This was all the water that we were allowed for every purpose, washing, shaving, drinking, cooking, etc. Yet the officers in their mess each evening regularly consumed more water with their whiskey than was allotted to the other ranks for all purposes combined. The result of all this was the longest retreat in the history of the British Army, about 700 miles in all, from a place in Tripoli called El Agahila to El Amin, El Alamein, sorry, about 50 miles west of Cairo. Here the British forces dug in for one final stand. If El Alamein should fall, the way would be open for the Axis powers to gain control of Egypt, to cut the Suez Canal, and to move over into Palestine. The Jewish community there would then be subjected to the same treatment that was already being meted out to the Jews in every area of Europe that had come under Nazi control. About 18 months previously, in a military barrack in Britain, I had received a very dramatic and powerful revelation of Christ. I thus knew in my own experience the reality of God's power. In the desert, I had no church or minister to offer me fellowship or counsel. I was obliged to depend upon the two great basic provisions of God for every Christian, the Bible and the Holy Spirit. I early came to see that by New Testament standards, fasting was a normal part of Christian discipline. During the whole period that I was in the desert, I regularly set aside Wednesday of each week as a special day for fasting and prayer. During the long and demoralizing retreat to the gates of Cairo, God laid on my heart a burden of prayer both for the British forces in the desert and for the whole situation in the Middle East. Yet I could not see how God could bless leadership that was so unworthy and inefficient. I searched in my heart for some form of prayer that I could pray with genuine faith and that would cover the needs of the situation. After a while, it seemed that the Holy Spirit gave me this prayer. Lord, give us leaders such that it will be for your glory to give us victory through them. I continued praying this prayer every day. In due course, the British government decided to relieve the commander of their forces in the desert and to replace him with another man. The man whom they chose was a general named W.H.E. Strafer Gott. He was flown to Cairo to take over command, but he was killed when his plane was shot down. At this critical juncture, the British forces in this major theater of the war were left without a commander. Winston Churchill, then Prime Minister of Britain, proceeded to act largely on his own initiative. He appointed a more or less unknown officer named B.L. Montgomery, who was hastily flown out of Britain. Montgomery was the son of, a, of an evangelical Anglican bishop. He was a man who has very definitely fulfilled God's two requirements in a leader of men. He was just and God-fearing. He was also a man of tremendous discipline. Within two months, he had instilled a totally new sense of discipline into his officers and had thus restored the confidence of the men and their leaders. Then the main battle of El Amin was fought. It was the first major Allied victory in the entire war up to that time. The threat of Egypt, the Suez Canal, and Palestine was finally thrown back, and the course of the war changed in favor of the Allies. Without a doubt, the battle of El Alamein was the turning point of the war in North Africa. Two or three days after the battle, I found myself in the desert a few miles behind the advancing Allied forces. 
A small portable radio beside me on the tailboard of a military truck was relaying a news commentator's description of the scene at Montgomery's headquarters as he had witnessed it on the eve of the battle. He recalled how Montgomery publicly called his officers and men to prayer, saying, Let us ask the Lord, mighty in battle, to give us the victory. As these words came through that portable radio, God spoke very clearly to my spirit. That is the answer to your prayer. How well this incident confirms the truth about promotion that is stated in Psalm 75, 6-7. The British government chose God for their commander, but God set him aside and raised up Montgomery, the man of his own choosing. God did this to bring glory to his own name and to answer a prayer that, by the Holy Spirit, he himself had first inspired me to pray. By this intervention, God also preserved the Jews in Palestine from coming under the control of the Axis powers. I believe that the prayer that God gave me at that time could well be applied to other situations, both military and political. Lord, give us leaders such that it will be for your glory to give us victory through them. Okay, on the first one, can you imagine if the Jews went through what they went through in the Holocaust and six million were killed? And Derek Prince is saying God told him to pray because they were fixing to go into Palestine and kill the Jews in their homeland. This would be about 42 through 45. You'd have to give me the exact date on this. But you're thinking before it even got the chance to become a nation, they would be all the Jews would have been taken out. Do you think God could give you a prayer assignment and just do you pray something off? I mean, how about if Derek Prince by himself was the only one praying? And he had such sorry leadership, he was like, God, how could you ever bless us? The British are as sorry as... And then the Lord shook up the leadership and changed his leadership. And he put men that had integrity in it. Y'all, that's a powerful story to think one man can pray something into a change. That literally God could use you to pray something like that. And then when he does it, guess what happens? Then he gets to go to Israel and be a part of the nation. That's the story. During 1947, the future of Palestine was brought before the General Assembly of the United Nations. At that time, the British still governed the country under a mandate that had been assigned to them by the League of Nations shortly after the end of World War I. On November 29, 1947, the United Nations voted to partition the country into two separate states, allotting a small area to an independent Jewish state and the rest of the country to the Arabs, with the city of Jerusalem under international control. The date set for the termination of the British mandate and the inception of the new political order in Palestine was May 14, 1948. Almost immediately after the United Nations' decision in favor of partition, the Arabs of Palestine, aided and abetted by infiltrators from the surrounding Arab nations, embarked on an undeclared war against the Jewish communities in their midst. Several main areas of the country were virtually taken over by armed groups of Arabs, with little or no semblance of normal civil government. By the early part of 1948, the Jewish community inside Jerusalem already presented the appearance of a beleaguered city. They were almost totally cut off from supplies of food and other commodities and were in a condition bordering on starvation. On the date set for the inauguration of the new Jewish state, all the surrounding Arab nations simultaneously declared war on it. Around 650,000 Jews, with the barest minimum of arms and equipment and without any officially constituted military forces, found themselves confronted on every frontier by a hostile Arab world, 50 million strong, who boasted well-trained armies and abundant military supplies. 
That'd be like Mexico and Canada hitting us all at once. <laughs> the leaders of the Arab nations publicly declared their intentions, their intention to annihilate the newborn Jewish state and to sweep the Jews into the sea. And that hasn't changed. At this period, my wife Lydia and I were living with our eight adopted daughters in the center of Jewish Jerusalem. We occupied a large house on the southeast corner of a main intersection between King George Avenue and a street leading eastward to the Jaffa Gate of the Old City. Lydia had been living in or near Jerusalem for the previous 20 years. She had been an eyewitness to a long series of earlier conflicts in that area between the Arabs and the Jews. She recalled that invariably the Jews had been poorly armed and ill-prepared to resist attack. In this critical hour, it seemed that the odds against the Jews were immeasurably greater than on previous occasions, and the results of defeat too terrible to contemplate. Together, Lydia and I searched the scriptures for words of encouragement or direction from God. Each day we became more and more convinced that we were living in the period of Israel's restoration, to which their prophets and leaders had looked forward over the long centuries of agony and exile. This was the time spoken of in Psalm 102, 12-13. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. For the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. We realized that we were seeing before our eyes the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Isaiah 43, 5-6 These and other passages of Scripture convinced us that the restoration of the Jews to their land was the sovereign purpose of God being fulfilled, being brought to fulfillment. If it was God's purpose to restore Israel, then it could not be His will for them to be driven out or destroyed. This gave us faith to pray for Israel's deliverance based not on nationalistic prejudices, but on the scriptural revelation of God's will. When Lydia and I were thus brought together by the Holy Spirit concerning God's will, our prayers fulfilled the conditions stated in Matthew eighteen nineteen. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. One day, as we were praying together, I heard Lydia utter this short prayer, Lord, paralyze the Arabs. When the full-scale fighting broke out in Jerusalem, our house was less than a quarter of a mile from the front line, which ran more or less along the west wall of the old city. In the first six weeks of fighting, we counted approximately 150 window panes that had been broken by bullets. For most of this period, our whole family lived in a large laundry room in the basement. Because of the strategic location of our house, our backyard was taken over by the Haganah the volunteer Jewish defense force that later developed into the official Israeli army. An observation post under the command of a young, young man named Feinhaus was located in the yard. Because of this, we became quite well acquainted with a number of the young Jewish people, both men and women, who manned the post. Early in June of 1948, the United Nations succeeded in imposing a four-week ceasefire, and there was a temporary lull in the fighting. One day during the ceasefire, some of our young Jewish friends were sitting in our living room talking freely about their experiences in the initial period of fighting. There's something we can't understand, a young man said. We go into an area where the Arabs are. They outnumber us ten to one and are much better armed than we are. Yet at times they seem powerless to do anything 
It's as if they are paralyzed. <laughs> right there in our own living room, this young Jewish soldier repeated the very phrase that Lydia had uttered in prayer a few weeks previously. I have never since ceased to marvel at God's faithfulness. Not only did God literally answer Lydia's prayers to paralyze the Arabs, but he also provided us with first-hand objective testimony from a Jewish soldier in our own living room that this was what he had done. God's purpose to grant Israel continuing occupation of their land was, in his, this miraculous way, achieved with the loss of fewer lives than would otherwise have been the case. It was the invading Arab armies, with all their superiority in arms and numbers, that were defeated and driven back. In the next 20 years, this initial victory of Israel was considered by equally dramatic victories in two succeeding wars. Today, the state of Israel has been firmly established and has achieved amazing progress in almost every area of its national life. For Lydia and me, all of this had greater significance than the mere record of unusual military or political achievements. Each time we received some fresh news concerning Israel's continuing development and progress, we said to ourselves with deep inner satisfaction, our prayers played a part in that. Yeah. Okay, let's do number three. Okay. So that's what happens if they start fighting right outside your door. Paralyze them. <laughs> From 1957 to 1961, this is a long one. Lydia and I served as educational missionaries in Kenya, East Africa. I was the principal of a teacher training college in western Kenya. During this period, Kenya was still painfully struggling to recover from the bloody agonies of the Mau Mau movement, which had created bitter mistrust and hatred, not only between Africans and Europeans, but also among many of the various African tribes. At the same time, the country was being hastily prepared for the end of British rule and for national independence. This was eventually achieved in 1963. In 1960, the Belgian Congo, which is to the west of Kenya, gained its independence. Without adequate preparation, the various African groups inside the Congo were unable to meet the demands of self-government and were plunged into a protracted series of bloody internal wars. Many of the European residents of the Congo fled eastward into Kenya, bringing with them gruesome pictures of the strife and chaos they had left behind them. Against this background, the forecasts of the political experts for the future of Kenya were dark indeed. It was generally predicted that Kenya would follow the unhappy course of the Congo, but with problems made even more serious by the internal antagonisms that were the legacy of Mau Mau. In August 1960, I was one of the number of missionaries ministering at a week-long convention for African young people held in western Kenya. There were about 200 young Africans in attendance, most of whom were either teachers or students. A considerable number of these were either students or former students from the teacher training college of which I was the principal. The convention ended on a Sunday. In the final service that evening, we witnessed a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, quoted by Peter. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Acts 2.17 A missionary colleague from Canada brought the closing address, which was translated into Swahili by a young man named Wilson Mambolio, who had recently graduated from our teacher training college. The first two hours of the service followed a normal pattern. But after the close of the missionary's address, the Holy Spirit moved with sovereign power and lifted the meeting onto a supernatural plane. 
For the next two hours, almost the whole group of more than 200 people continued in spontaneous worship and prayer without any visible human leadership. At a certain point, the conviction came to me that, as a group, we had touched God and that His power was at our disposal. God spoke to my spirit and said, Do not let them make the same mistake that Pentecostals have so often made in the past by squandering my power in spiritual self-indulgence. Tell them to pray for the future of Kenya. I began to make my way to the platform, intending to deliver to the whole group the message that I felt God had given to me. On the way, I passed Lydia, who was sitting beside the aisle. She put out her hand and stopped me. What do you want? I asked her. Tell them to pray for Kenya, she said. That's just what I'm going up to the platform for, I replied. I realized that God had spoken to my wife at the same time that he had spoken to me, and I accepted this as confirmation of his direction. Reaching the platform, I called the whole group to silence and presented God's challenge to them. You are the future leaders of your people, I told them, both in the field of education and also in the field of religion. The Bible places upon you, as Christians, the responsibility to pray for your country and its government. Your country is now facing the most critical period in its history. Let us unite together in praying for the future of Kenya. Wilson Mombolio was with me on the platform, translating my words into Swahili. When the time came to pray, he knelt down beside me. As I led in prayer, almost every person present joined me in praying out loud. The combined volume of voices rising in prayer reminded me of the passage in Revelation 19.6. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings. The sound of prayer swelled to a crescendo, then suddenly ceased. It was as if some invisible conductor had brought down his baton. After a few moments of silence, Wilson stood up and spoke to the congregation. I want to tell you what the Lord showed me while we were praying, he said. I realized that God had given him a vision as he knelt beside me in prayer. Wilson then related the vision he had seen, first in English and then in Swahili. I saw a red horse approaching Kenya from the east, he said. It was very fierce, and there was a very black man riding on it. Behind it were several other horses, also red and fierce. While we were praying, I saw all the horses turn around and move away toward the north. Wilson paused for a moment and then continued. I asked God to tell me the meaning of what I had seen, and this is what he told me. Only the supernatural power of the prayer of my people can turn away the troubles that are coming upon Kenya. For many days after that, I continued to meditate on what Wilson had told us. I realized that Wilson's vision was in some ways similar to one recorded in Zechariah 1, 7-11. I asked Wilson whether he was familiar with this passage of Zechariah, and he replied that he was not. I gradually concluded that by this vision, God had granted us an assurance that He had heard our prayers for Kenya and that He would intervene in some definite way on behalf of the country. Subsequent events in Kenya's history have confirmed that this was so. During the period of British rule, Kenya was one of three states that made up British East Africa. The other two states were Uganda to the west and, I don't know this word, Tanganyika to the south. Tanganyika was later named Tanzania. Kenya eventually achieved her independence on December 12, 1963. 
The other two states had already achieved independence somewhat earlier. Immediately after the independence was declared, a national government was duly elected in Kenya, with Jomo Kenyatta as the nation's first president. In January 1964, there was an exact outworking in Kenya's history of the vision that Wilson had seen. A bloody revolution broke out in Zanzibar, off Kenya's east coast. This was led by an African from Uganda who had been who had been training in revolutionary tactics under Castro in Cuba. The revolution succeeded in overthrowing the Sultan of Zanzibar. In the same month, a revolutionary movement gripped the National Army of Tanzania. Its influence also spread to the Army of Kenya. The aim was to overthrow the elected government in Kenya and to replace it by a military dictatorship under communist control. At this crucial point, Kenya's new president, Jomo Kenyatta, acted with wisdom and firmness. Enlisting the help of the British Army, he suppressed the revolutionary movement in the Kenyan army and restored law and order throughout the country. Thus, the authority of Kenya's duly elected government was preserved and the communist attempt at a military takeover was completely foiled. In Wilson's vision, the red horses that turned away from Kenya moved towards the north. Northward along the African coast from Kenya lies Somalia, the kind of communist military coup that failed in Kenya was successful in Somalia. Someone later described Somalia as a communist military camp. The other countries bordering on Kenya have likewise experienced serious political problems. To the south, in Tanzania, strong communist influence has brought about various limitations of political freedom. To the west, in Uganda, there has been a history of unstable governments and internal tribal clashes, with a very determined effort by the Muslims to gain control of the country and to make Islam the official religion of the nation. Yet, in the midst of all of this, Kenya has succeeded in combining order and progress with a high degree of political and religious liberty to a remarkable extent. The attitude of Kenya's government toward Christianity has been consistently friendly and cooperative. Although President Kenyatta does not himself profess to be a Christian, he has officially invited the various Christian bodies in Kenya to teach the message of Christianity in every government school in the country. In many ways, Kenya has become a strategically located center from which trained national Christians are able to move out with the gospel message to all the surrounding countries. Sometimes God uses unexpected means of getting information to us. In October 1966, I was in the office of a travel agency in Copenhagen making arrangements for a flight to London. While I was waiting for my ticket to be prepared, I picked up an English edition of the London Times. There was a special 16-page supplement that dealt exclusively with Kenya. In essence, the theme of this supplement was that Kenya had proved to be one of the most stable and successful of nearly 50 new nations that had emerged on the continent of Africa since the end of World War II. As I turned each page of the supplement, I seemed to hear the inaudible voice of God within my spirit saying, This is what I can do when Christians pray with faith for the government of their nation. Okay. Okay. This one's a shocker. From 1949 to 1956, I was a pastor of a congregation in London, England. I retained a special interest in God's dealings with the Jewish people, which had first been kindled by my experiences in Jerusalem at the time of the birth of the State of Israel. 
Early in 1953, I received information from reliable sources that Joseph Stalin, who at that time ruled the Soviet Union as an unchallenged dictator, was planning a systematic purge directed against the Russian Jews. As I meditated on this situation, the Lord reminded me of Paul's exhortation to the Gentile Christians concerning the Jews. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. Romans 11:30-31. Somehow I felt that God was laying at my door the responsibility for the Jews in Russia. I shared my feelings with the leaders of a few small prayer groups in various parts of Britain who also had a special concern for the Jews. Eventually, we decided to set aside one day for the special prayer and fasting on behalf of the Russian Jews. I do not recall the exact date chosen, but I believe it was a Thursday. All the members of our group groups voluntarily committed themselves to abstain from food that day and to devote special time to prayer for God's intervention on behalf of the Jews in Russia. Our own congregation met that evening for group prayer devoted primarily to that topic. There was no particular dramatic spiritual manifestation in the meeting, no special sense of being blessed or emotionally stirred. But within two weeks from that day, the course of history inside Russia was changed by one decisive event, the death of Stalin. <laughs> he was 73 years old. No advance warning of his sickness or impending death was given to the Russian people. Up to the last moment, 16 of Russia's most skilled doctors fought to save his life, but in vain. The cause of death was said to be a brain hemorrhage. Let it be clearly stated that no member of any of our groups prayed for the death of Stalin. <laughs> we simply committed the situation inside Russia to God and trusted his wisdom for the answer that was needed. Nevertheless, I am convinced that God's answer came in the form of Stalin's death. In Acts chapter 2, a somewhat similar answer to the prayers of the early church is recorded. You want me to keep reading this? Yeah. It basically tells that a similar situation where a guy declared mm -hmm. himself to be God, and then he fell. So, no, that'd be good. Yeah. Okay. So, y'all, I can't tell you how many times that I go over these four stories in my head. When I'm praying for something, I'm like sitting there thinking, wow, one man in Africa in the army prayed. Then when he was living in Israel, his wife prayed and him, and they were able to keep the Arabs from, you know, attacking the, and driving the Jews into the sea. And then you've got Kenya, like a shocking Christian nation. And it was about to be taken over by communism. So that was the red horse. And then uh, you have Stalin. And you know, I go over those in my head all the time because it's praying, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm giving you a verse here of Revelation 3.10. And it says, Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing that's about to come on the whole earth. Y'all, that's an important word. That you can live in the land of Goshen while the whole earth goes through testing. And what does that mean? Well, find out what it means with your heart. Find out with the Lord. Because I think you can basically pull it as deep as you want. And you ask yourself, I think in Brownwood sometimes, how many people are really praying? How many people really get up and think that their prayers can make a difference? And so we've started praying for local government, state government, national government. And as you do, you're praying God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you're pulling that down. 
I think his stories are shocking. And he adds in the atomic bomb of fasting on it. And I always say that when uh, I'm, I can't get something to break through, I add fasting to it. And it's like an atomic bomb. It, it blows it all up. And it lets you go through and, and God becomes your rear guard. Okay, the third point then, as you're praying God's will to be done, that's pretty strong in the beginning of the prayer. But three is, give us our day, our daily bread. In this verse to me, it's the verse that, where it lets us pray for our daily needs. So first of all, it's not that you shouldn't pray for your daily needs. It's telling you, pray that you give us this day our daily bread. It's just one line of praying for our own needs. Sometimes this is the only kind of praying we do. Is your prayer life where it's all begging God for stuff for yourself? Yeah, I think it's funny. And so I think this is kind of proportional here. It's a ratio where you're actually, give us this day our daily bread. Because I was looking down it, and really it's the one that's most praying for your needs. And then I've given you this verse before in Matthew 24, 20. In my personal opinion, Matthew 24, 20 is the strongest verse in the Bible on prayer. It says you can literally change the season and the day of tribulation. And it says to pray. This verse is the strongest verse in the Bible on prayer. I thought God already had his calendar written. And I thought he had it the day of the week. Then it adds in the personal thing of pray you won't be pregnant or nursing. So it makes it where you can personally survive it. Pray it won't be on Shabbat so the borders are closed and you can't get apart. Pray that it won't be in winter. Y'all, that's hard to believe that this tribulation is not already set up in stone. That you have the ability to pray and to make a difference. By prayer, we can actually change an event and set up the time by God of the end days. You can change the season by praying. And hopefully people through history have been already praying that verse for us. And that we're adding our agreement to it of, Lord, I thank you it won't be in the winter time. I thank you it won't be when I personally can't make it. I pray that it won't be on the wrong day of the week where the borders are shut. Because when they shut the borders, you can't get across. Okay, so give us this day our daily bread. And you're praying, the Lord's will be done. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And I looked it up and the word really is debts. I think that's unusual. Forgive us our debts. This involves relationships. Our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationships. When you get off in your horizontal relationships, it can open the door in your vertical relationship. When you get off in your vertical relationship, it can open the door on your horizontal relationships. This is so important that you keep this. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Don't clog up the prayer lines to heaven with something like unforgiveness. I mean, y'all, if you've got any unforgiveness in you, make sure you get that out of you. It makes you bitter. It does weird things. It's like a, its own little form of bitterness arthritis. You've got to get unforgiveness out of you. Then I'm going to challenge you to go a step further. In John 20, it says, you know, it says peace, and he, and he blows on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit, which is, to me, a very unique scripture. I would love to see how he... Blew on them, you know. Did he blow on the whole group? Did he go up individually and blow on each of their faces? I mean, we skipped that verse. But he tells us you can forgive sins here. So when somebody's really irking me and they're sinning just right in front of me, I'll go, Lord, I ask you to forgive their sins. Because it says I have the power to forgive sins in his name. And he gives us that power. No one, I mean, we got kicked out of a camp once for me mentioning that verse. And I thought, oh, I'm just reading it. 
Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Doesn't it irritate you when somebody owes you something, a debt, and they don't pay you, and they don't seem to care? I think that's hilarious that he uses the word debt. Nothing can make you matter when somebody bars something and they just don't, you know. <laughs> I'll never forget one of our college kids. They barred our vacuum cleaner, and they broke it. And they put it back in our living room, and they had the broken, uh, what's it called, the... Uh, no, not the hose, but the, uh, what's that called? Uh, the Yeah, it's, a, it's the track. You know, it made a, you know. Gasket. You know, it's the tracking. The belt. belt. Thank you, Jesse. My gosh, we've about built a vacuum cleaner in here. So they put a, okay, we're playing charade, y'all did good. Yeah. Well, they put the broken belt on top of the vacuum cleaner, and they go, healed in Jesus' name. Yeah, that guy's in ministry. We were like, you know, yeah, it just did something. I would have rather not had the sign. You know, I just would have rather had it thrown in my house. You know, you know, it's just as easy for him to go get a belt and put it on as us. It, you know, it's just funny. And it just irritates you. And the Lord says, don't let your debts forgive us our debts. Realize I've done some dumb stuff. I've done some stupid stuff. I don't even notice I'm doing it sometimes. You know, I leave something bad in Israel on their house. Or, you know, I, I do something. <laughs> I got to tell you all a bad story. We went to see Melanie. And Steph and I had already known each other about, oh, I think we had only known each other a couple of weeks. And so I wanted to go see this Irene Gleason who had this amazing Psalm 91 story. So she lets us, you know, stay the night. And I thought Steph was going to shoot her cat. But I went and got men's socks, and I went and put it in the bottom of Melanie's bed. Because, you know, can you imagine she's, she lives alone, and all of a sudden she's like, where did this come from? <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Forgive us our debts as we forgive. She's probably to this day still going, how did that get there? <laughs> Next time I'm going to bring a T-shirt, you know, just keep putting stuff there. So. so, you know, you can do some crazy stuff. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us away from temptation and deliver us from evil. And this was the prayer that I prayed every day growing up. Lead me away from temptation and deliver me from evil. I actually had a picture in my mind that God would just make me jump over temptation or make it miss me. And so it wasn't that I was a good kid. I just never was tempted, ever. I never got into any kind of temptation. Because he just led me away from temptation. Every day I prayed, lead me away from temptation. The first time I ever faced temptation, I was like, I don't have any spiritual muscles in this area. You know, and I had to build some muscles because I had always prayed, lead me away from temptation and deliver us from evil, deliver us from harm. Man, wouldn't that make a difference if every day you were getting up and you were praying over your day, Lord, deliver me from harm, deliver me from evil, lead me away from temptation. You know, that protection, that preventative praying, it's a great way to pray. Where you take those premonitions that you have, those little thoughts that shoot through your head, and you don't get spooked by them, or you don't get into pride and say, I knew that was going to happen. I told you so. But you take them to the throne. Can't you sense things coming on? It's not so you say, I knew that was going to happen. It's so you can say, Lord, lead me away from temptation. You know, just like Angie. I was always led completely away from it. It was, it was the most unique. I always told myself, I'm a kept woman. The Lord just kept me from all this stuff. It's a good way to live. Lead me away from temptation 
deliver me from evil. That you take them to the throne before they happen. For example, premonitions about a child dying or a car wreck or a house burning. Do spiritual warfare ahead of time. If you have a thought go through your head, I think that's going to burn. Pray. You've probably gotten on the wavelength of a Wiccan that's <laughs> chanting. <laughs> we have a new ideal in life now. So, uh, Two areas it covers. Personal temptation and enemy attacks. What a double-edged sword here that the Lord's telling you that. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Y'all, I didn't realize that that comes from Daniel. Daniel 7.14 and Daniel 2.37. For thine is the power, the kingdom, and the glory. I love saying those words. For thine is the power, the kingdom. Telling God what he knows. I'm like, God, I don't have to tell you you're the power, the kingdom, the glory forever. Acknowledging that you know. Jesus is Lord. Confession, acknowledgement. You know, Romans 1.28 says, If we don't acknowledge, it actually says we get perverted. If you don't acknowledge God, you get perverted in some way. Acknowledge His power, His kingdom, His glory. And then sevens, amen. Don't stop at the amen. Amen and over and out. Don't forget the amen. It's not just a tag at the end of your prayer. It's important. Did you know amen means so let it be? You're adding a deep agreement here. Let it be so. Actually, the word amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that's used both in Greek and in English. And it's actually the word amen. Keep your faith going through the amen. Don't just stop at it, for thine is the kingdom. Amen's a word here. The same word that is used in the gospel in John, did you know the word amen, amen, is verily, verily? Truly, truly, I say to you. That's the word amen. When Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying amen, amen. Jesus used it to introduce new revealed truth. And that's what he's doing. You're agreeing. It's a level of agreement where you're putting it. Quite a prayer right through the amen. Amen.